Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Well, how we doing today, Rocky Peak? You guys feeling good? Good. If you're brand new, really glad you're here. Welcome. My name's Dave Cox. I have the privilege of serving as one of the senior pastors, and uh, I'm also a father. I have a three-year-old son, and he's at that stage. He just loves to be like dad. He wants to be like dad. Even said, what's it like to be a man? Well, son, if you want to be a man, first, you got to learn how to shave. So here we are. Um, you'll see us up here momentarily. That's us. <laughs> he learning how to shave. Uh, also said, well, if you want to learn how to be a man, then what you got to do, you have to learn how to use your words to help people. You know, daddy tells people about Jesus. You can learn to do that. You want to use your words to make people feel better. You can encourage them. Can you do that? Yeah. Uh, so there's certain words we don't say. We don't say stupid. Okay. Okay, dad, don't, I won't do that. And uh, he really remembers this stuff. It kind of goes in. It sinks in. He holds on to it. A few days later, we're hanging out, and he just goes, oh, dad. I'm like, what's that? You just did it. What did I do? You just said the S word. You said stupid. Oh, so, really good. You caught it. Dad, I, I think, think you need to go on a break. Oh. Okay. Uh, well, how, how long? I, I think a minute, Dad. A minute. All right, I'll do it. You let me know when I'm off the hook. So he does that. He calls me out, puts me on this little break. Uh, if I'm grumpy, I'll say, Dad, you're getting grumpy. You know, it's interesting when you have people who live close to you, they're the ones who can hold you most accountable. Isn't that true? We need family. We need other people in our lives to encourage us to go the right way. And sometimes God will just call out to our own conscience, and he'll move us forward. We, he, we have a sense like, ah, I'm, I'm actually going the wrong direction, and he'll call out to your conscience. Sometimes he'll actually bring other people into your life to redirect you, whether they're 3-year-old or they're 30-year-old or 100-years-old, doesn't matter. And uh, we need that. We really need that. We're in a message series, and it's called The Power to Change. The Power to Change. Anybody still feel like you need some change in your life? Nobody's arrived? Good. This is for all of us then. Power to change. We need more power to change. The story we're looking at today is a story where you see a, a, a huge change that has taken place in the lives of people. And it's a series we've been in the book of 2 Corinthians. But if you're new, I want to get you up to speed a little bit because we're dropping into a really key part of this story. This is like the climax of the story of what was taking place. So I need to set it up for you a little bit. When Jesus came and he died, he rose after his resurrection. Within a few years after, I mean, there were thousands of people following Jesus, thousands of them. Uh, God rose up different leaders to continue that movement, to go out there, continue sharing about Christ. One of the key leaders of the movement, his name was Paul. And Paul uh, traveled several times, and as he would make travels, he'd go to different cities, and during his travels, he would actually go out there and he would start churches. One city he went to was a city called Corinth. And uh, people came to know the Lord, plants this church, starts developing him, loving on him. And he loved these people. He loved them so much, like a father loves a son. He loved them. And this church, I'm telling you, it was full of trouble, full of problems. Uh, there were divisions. There was sexual sin. You start going down the list, you name it, it was coming up in this church. And like a, a father, he's always trying to redirect him, always trying to keep him back, put him back on track. And so several times when he would continue his travels, he would often write a letter and send it by messenger, bring it back to that church, and he would, he would keep loving and instructing them through letters. We don't have all of his letters. We only have a couple. Um, one is in 1 Corinthians, the other one is 2 Corinthians. 
Now, this letter, 2 Corinthians, was written in a response to something that was going on. As he was out traveling, a rogue leader rose up in that church. This leader um, did huge damage. In fact, the way Paul described it, he said, said he was teaching a doctrine of demons, a different gospel, different Jesus. People are literally turning away from the true message of Christ. The leader also kind of does a one-two punch. He also begins to nail and undermine Paul. So what he's doing is taking the voice of God's primary spokesman to them away. So Paul's getting undermined. He's like, look at that guy. Look at it. This guy's got problems. You think that guy's from God? Really? This is what this rogue leader is rising up and doing, casting doubt, turning him away. Paul hears about this, distraught, he comes back. Chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians describes it as a painful visit. He tries to redirect him, tries to get him back on track. The visit doesn't go well. In fact, um, these people, this church, while he was there in Corinth, they actually began siding with the rogue leader. And Paul could have risen up. He had authority by God. He could have risen up as an apostle, messenger of God, and come with full authority and spoke directly to him. But he chose to do something totally different. He didn't want to blow that church up. He knew he could literally, it, it was at a, such a critical time, it could have blown the whole thing apart. He decides to pull back. He goes out of the city for a while. And it's got to be like a parent of a teenage son or daughter who's kind of weighing, like gone off the path, trying to figure, how do you respond to this? And they're trying, he's trying to wrap his, his head around. Do I write a letter? Do I come at him that way? Should I send it? Should I not? So he writes this letter, and he, he goes through this debate. Should I send it? Should I not send it? And in fact, the letter is termed as the severe letter or the tearful letter. That's in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. And he decides to send it. He gives it to one of his most trusted guys. His name's uh, Titus. Titus takes this letter, goes to the Corinthians, and delivers it to them. And his heart is that they would change, that there would be a turnaround, that they'd come back to the Lord, come back to him, and he's hoping for that. Meanwhile, Paul's out. He's out in some other cities. He's in a city called Ephesus. He's got to go to a place called Macedonia. And as he's traveling, he cannot get them off his mind. So instead of making a straight shot to Macedonia, he, he thinks Titus should be back in a city called Troas by now. So he's going to make a stop. He goes to this little city called Troas, and he's looking all over for Titus. Is Titus around? Is he here? I got to know how that letter went. Did they receive it? Didn't they? Well, he gets there. Titus isn't even in that city. But I'm telling you, it is like one of his dreams come true because ministry is, is so ready to go. People are hungry. People turning to the Lord. He could literally stay there and start and start launching the whole nether step of this whole movement in this city. But he is so distraught over this letter. He loves the Corinthians so much. He's got to know what's happened. He leaves this awesome opportunity in Troas, and he continues on to Macedonia just to get word from Titus. Man, I bet he wished he could text at that moment, don't you? Give me an email, a text, something, right? Didn't have it. So off he goes, off to Macedonia, and he finds Titus. And Titus, when he, when he gets, gets up to Titus, Titus has that look in his eyes like, it went better than you could ever imagine. I got to tell you. And by the way, you'll hear how it's described. He must have given him a blow by blow because a huge change took place. Those people totally turned back to the Lord, 
to Paul, away from that leader, massive change. This is like a before-after moment for it. And I'm telling you, the risk involved in writing that letter was huge. If it had gone sideways, if it was not received well, the entire movement of Christ in that region could have been stunted because there was a complete undermining of Paul's leadership and authority. So it was, there was huge risk and implications the minute he dropped that letter and wrote it. But, but thank God it worked. So his response to hearing about this letter is 2 Corinthians and uh, this is where we jump in today, and you'll hear him talking about this letter that he wrote. If you have a Bible, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 7. I mean, verse 8. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. And this is how, it, how we jump in. And this is Paul saying, hey, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Do you hear him, how he's saying it? I regret it. Oh, no, I, did. I didn't know if I should send it. I don't know what to do. But he goes, he's glad he did. It only hurt you for a little while. Verse 9, yet now I'm happy. Not because you're made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Underline that. Led him to repentance. He's so happy they changed their ways. That word repentance, a literal word, word is metanoia. And it means literally after mind or to change your mind. It's a change of thought process, a whole new way of looking, a whole new way of seeing things. It is so radically a shift that it changes all your actions to follow. A major shift. It's repentance. That's, what the, that's the whole idea behind it. And what was their repentance? They turned away from this uh, false message, what was called as the doctrine of demons. He turned, they turned from that, turned back to the Lord, Reengaged with Paul, and they moved away from that rogue leader. That's what the change was about. Huge stuff. For you became sorrowful as God intended. He's saying it's not superficial. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. And guess what else it does? It leads to salvation. And it leaves no, what's the next word? Regret. Ooh, underline that. Godly sorrow leaves what? No regret. Say it again. Godly sorrow leaves no regret. Oh, we'll unpack that later. That's good. But worldly sorrow brings death. They didn't just feel sorry for being called out. There was a literal life change. Um, and now, as, as uh, Paul writes this letter, he goes on and he's going to give seven very descriptive nouns to demonstrate this radical change that took place in them. You'll hear it as he writes it. So this is where you could see Titus must have given him a blow by blow of their response. But he goes on in verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. What eagerness to clear yourself. Hey, we're not following that guy. We're not following his teaching. What indignation. Mad at that rogue leader, they're mad at themselves. What alarm. They're shocked that they actually mistreated Paul this way. The representative of God. They've actually disregarded God. They're alarmed, they're shocked. What longing to be restored to Paul, to the Lord. What concern. Better word for that actually is zeal. Zeal for God, his message, 
for Paul leading the charge and what readiness to see justice done. And at every point, you proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So Paul's just saying, listen, I heard it. You guys are awesome. You're totally clean. You are clear. He's got to be smiling as he's writing this. You could hear a smile through these words. Verse 12. So even though I wrote you, it wasn't a count on the one who did wrong, probably referring to the rogue leader, or of the injured party himself, but rather that before God, underline that, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. When it says before God, Paul's whole desire is that before God, they're right. That is his driving motivation, that they're right with God. Even if he suffered humiliation in this process, he's not as concerned just about his name. He wants the name of the Lord. He wants them to be made right with God. Verse 13, by all this we're encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was. Because the spirit has been refreshed by y'all. This is what he's saying. Thank, thank you so much. You took care of Titus. And you're going to hear him say, I even told Titus you were going to do this. I told him that you are going to love him. That there's going to be an amazing response. What's he doing? He's being one of the most encouraging pastors you could find. You just hear His love always pours out as he writes. Even when he's correcting him. I knew you could. You did it. And... Uh, he says in verse 14, and you have to think for Titus, that had to be pretty stressful. You're carrying a harsh letter. All right, sorry, just delivering this. Verse 14, I had boasted to him about you, and you didn't embarrass me, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear, trembling, and I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. Do you hear his love pouring off that page? He loves him. He loves him. Titus loves him too. Do you know that Paul knew something? He knew that this radical change, this major shift, was a turnaround as a result of God's working in their lives. He knew that. It's God at work. God's the one putting his finger on it. He's redirecting them. His spirit is stirring. He's calling that church back to himself. And it was a major, major thing. And that's really what this whole series is about that we could be people, as we look at these words, that God is somehow grabbing us and we are turned even more to the Lord than we've ever been before. That God continues to change us, to draw him to himself. That's our passion, that's our desire. And I'm telling you, you know the catalyst for change? It is repentance. Repentance is a catalyst for change. Um, we don't always use that word. You might even have an image of a guy at Third Street, red face, ah, you know, yelling. But I'm telling you, it is a word all throughout the Bible. Jesus used it a lot. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. When Jesus would say those words, repent, for the kingdom of God is here, you know what he's saying? Listen, repent, change the way you think, turn around. Because listen, the kingdom of God, the very presence, the very rule of God, the very power of God is available right now for you. It's being established. Come on in. It's an invitation to be in partnership with him, to come under his authority and experience his presence and power in your life. Jesus always made that call. It's good stuff. So you have to get an idea. The word has an idea, and it's almost like repentance has this idea where you're literally going one direction, but then you, ah, you're going to retrace your steps, go the other direction. Um, last year I had an opportunity. Um, I was in the Yucatan Peninsula, southern Mexico, 
and my wife and I were there. We were in the jungles out there, and they had these gorgeous, like, underwater ground uh, pools called cenotes, or as they say, cenotes. They're beautiful. And I would swim in every one I could find. We were traveling all over, checking these things out. Sometimes the roof of these would cave in, so it's exposed to the outside sunlight. I was swimming through one of these, and you can see it had a tunnel. There's a tunnel that went down and under. There was, a, there was an outcropping, kind of this rock outcropping, and I could swim under this, and I was at the other side, so I knew it came out the other side. And uh, I was just free diving, had a mask and fins. So I, I dived down, and you know, I'm going to just swim through this thing. Well, I get in there, and I'm, I'm swimming through this thing. Uh, I didn't realize it's not a straight shot. It actually makes a turn, and another turn. I know there's light on the other side, so I know it goes out. But I had not checked to see if it, the hole is big enough for a person to get through. Uh, and so in a nanosecond in my mind, I'm like, bad choice. Turn around. So, you know, turn around in this hole before my breath runs out. Turn, get out the other way. Come up and gasp for air. My wife is just totally relaxed on the sea, I mean, on the side there. Had no clue anything happened. But what did I just do? I repented of the way I just went. I was going one way, and I'm like, uh-uh. I am going to stop. I am changing my mind about this one. Turn around, go out the other way. And I, and I turned around. That's a picture of repentance. It's a change of thought that leads to a change of action. And biblical repentance has this deep sense in it that you're turning from sin, you're turning to the Lord. It's this powerful, powerful picture, a key image. Now, I want to unpack biblical repentance a little bit more. I, wanna, I want you to have some more detail about what it actually means, and there's two aspects of it. The first is this. Biblical repentance includes, first of all, remorse from recognizing that you have wronged God. It's remorse, and you're recognizing that you've wronged who? God. You've wronged God. Paul knows that not all experiences of feeling bad actually lead people to repentance. He knows that. Just because you feel bad doesn't necessarily mean you're repenting. So in his passage in Corinthians, he unpacked two kinds of sorrow. First one was destructive. He called it worldly sorrow. Uh, there's a worldly sorrow. And you know what it, the, the heart behind this is? It's just mere regret. Regret for doing it. I love how uh, this one Greek dictionary put it this way. It expresses the mere desire that what's done may be undone, accompanied with regrets or even remorse, but with no effective change of heart. Say so you regret you did it. Your heart's not any different about it. There's no change of heart. You wish you could take it back. You regret the consequences, but your heart has not changed, right? Most of you know, um, I also serve as a reserve police officer. I don't get paid for that, but I go and I'll, I'll work and I serve as an officer. But I see this all the time. I was working a vice assignment and I remember uh, we had made, we'd arrested somebody. He was a really wealthy guy, owner of a huge business. And we had arrested this guy. He's totally embarrassed about this arrest. It's a vice arrest. And he was totally embarrassed by it. And as we were booking him, um, I'm actually getting ready to do this booking. And uh, he, is, he's, he just cannot believe he got caught for this. So I'm booking this guy. And uh, he, he just looks at me and he goes, hey, how about $100,000 between you and your partner? And we forget this whole thing. I'm like, 100000 
He goes, yeah, 100,000. Hey, partner. <laughs> hey, this guy says, 100 grand between us, we forget the whole thing. He goes, really, 100,000? I'm like, yeah, 100,000. I'm like, hey, partner, is that still a felony? Bribing an officer? He goes, yeah, it's still a felony. I said, well, do you want to book him or you want me to book him? He goes, oh, you're already doing it. Go ahead. Just fin- go ahead. You can finish that out. Oh, no words. I'll just take care of it. The guy's like, oh, no, no, no. I was just saying, what if? I was saying, what if there was 100,000? Not even saying, I'm just saying, what if? And, you know, booking this guy. He's got tears in his eyes. You know, he's got tears. Are those tears? What kind of tears are they? Those are tears of regret. Regret that he got caught. Is he really have a change of heart? There is no change of heart there. We can regret consequences, but it doesn't mean there's any real significant change of heart. Biblical repentance has that whole idea wrapped up in it. Worldly sorrow, destructive sorrow, focuses on yourself. It turns inward. The longer you stay with it, the worse it gets. You could regret it. You hate the fact that you're suffering these consequences. So you start to beat yourself up because you're so mad at yourself. You'll play it over and over in your mind. Begin to hate yourself for it. Becomes like a cancer within that eats you. It's destructive. I like one commentator. He says, recognition of sin by itself isn't repentance. It may be defiance. Nor is sorrow for sin repentance. If it be alone in the mind, it may be remorse or despair. Abandonment of sin by itself may be no more than prudence. You might even stop doing what you did just because you're prudent. Your heart has not changed. In the Bible, there's a great picture, several of them actually. I'll just tell you one. When Jesus died, he was crucified. And when he was going to his death, even the closest followers to him turned their back on him. Remember that? His closest friends turned their back on him. One of them sold him out, 30 pieces of silver. His name's Judas. So Judas sells him out. And after he sells him out, you get this other picture where Judas is totally torn over this. He's totally broken. So broken, he goes back to those he sold them out to, reasons with him, throws the money back, doesn't even want it anymore, gets rid of the money. But he is so inwardly focused, he never goes back to the Lord, ever. It's destructive. And you see the result of it for him, he took his own life. One commentator said, it is a rejection of grace that leads to feeling like you have to bear the penalty yourself. You've got to bear that penalty of sin. You do. Dig your way out. That's destructive. And the way Paul said it, it brings death. Well, what's, what's death? You're alienated from God. You're farther from God than when you started. It eats at you. It exhausts your soul. That's what it does. You're worn out from this thing. And it breeds. They say that if, you, if there's a rattlesnake that is cornered, they can get so upset and worked up that they will literally bite themselves. It's a great picture of destructive sorrow. It will turn on itself and bite. It's deadly. 
Paul said there's a different kind of sorrow. God lays it out for us. He said it is constructive. It's constructive sorrow. It's beneficial. It's godly sorrow. Do you know the heart behind this kind of sorrow? This regret, when, it's, when you're going there, your mind turns from yourself to the Lord. So even when you're regretting something, you're, he is in mind. You're not just staring at yourself. And in Corinthians, as it unpacks it, it says it brings three things. It brings repentance, leads to salvation, and it leaves no what? No regrets. What does it leave? No. You will never regret it. You will never regret it. Another person who had failed in the end turned their back on Christ Not once, not twice, three times. His name is Peter. Peter totally messes up. Betrays Christ multiple times right before his death. Peter is broken over this. He has a different kind of sorrow. There's something different about his sorrow that literally leads him back to God. He's now going back to the Lord. And you have this awesome picture. We're on the side of a shore Jesus is making breakfast, and at this breakfast, he reinstates Peter. Peter, you're a rock. And he, he recommissions him to go out. He says, you love him? He goes, feed my sheep. He says it three times. He's building him up. I believe in you. You go do it. It's crazy stuff. Peter had a radical turnaround. It is more than emotional reaction. It is God-inspired sorrow that comes out of this thing. You know what it looks like? James 4 has a picture of what this kind of sorrow looks like. You can turn in your Bible to James 4, verse 7. I'll read three verses to you. This is what it says in James chapter 4. It says, submit yourselves then to, who's the next word? God. Who are we submitting to? Say it like you know it. Who's the next, who are we submitting to? Who's the focus? Oh, good. Remember that. Um, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Then it says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Oh, you won't regret that. Then it says, look at all the verbs it uses. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. You can grieve. You mourn and wail. You know, there's times the Lord may bring you to a godly sorrow where you will literally be in tears over it. He will never leave you in that spot, though. He won't do that. It says, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom and humble yourself before the Lord, and what will he do? Ooh, you see that? He'll grab you, he'll lift you up. You're humbled. And he'll bring new life back into you. It'll leave no regret. That kind of sorrow leaves no regret. Something is life-giving in it. Restoring in it. It's powerful stuff. You ever cried over your sin? Something that's been there? If it's really before the Lord, it'll bring life into you. Second thing that godly sorrow includes, first was remorse, that you've wronged God. The second is this. There is a resolve 
to reverse your behavior and make wrongs right. You know that God's working in you when this is happening. There is a resolve to reverse your behavior and make wrongs right. Going to make it right. It's an idea like this. You're having coffee with somebody. You reach over. You're grabbing some sugar. Um, or someone does this to you. They, they're grabbing sugar. The coffee spills directly on your lap. Ah, you know, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. That's regret. They regret they've just done that. Other people may go a little farther than that. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. They're grabbing napkins. They're cleaning you up. They're cleaning off that table. They're giving you money. Here's, here's this. This is for your cleaning bill. I am so sorry. What's the difference? One can have regret. They could be irritated themselves that whole day for being so clumsy. The other one, there was some action that's being taken. They're moving towards it. They're trying to make it right. And there's a picture when godly sorrow is taking place in our life, God will sometimes be moving on us to do very specific things to even make it right. Not, and i got to clarify this. When I say making it right, making it right isn't trying to earn favor, earn something to get forgiveness. That's done when you come to Christ. It's been covered already. But the Lord may call us sometimes to take another step, to go back to someone we've offended, to pay back something we've stolen. He might do that. So, resolve to reverse your behavior, make things right. You know, what does that look like in the Bible? I'll just give you two verses that show a little snapshot of biblical repentance and how it in includes this aspect. The first thing is, it'll, it'll include, like, renouncing of sin. And you see it in Ezekiel 14, 6. Renouncing very specific sins. This is one where Israel had turned to other gods. And this is, this is what it says. It says, therefore, say to the house of Israel... This is what the sovereign Lord says. There it is. What's the word? Repent. And the next word is what? Turn. turn. You're going this way, and what are you doing? Boom. You're turning now. You're walking away from that. Turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. Turning, turn away from the things that have more influence over you than God that are pulling you away from him. you got to turn from that stuff. Turn. And then it says renounce. Great word. You're renouncing specific sins. So specific things. And it says the word all. Renounce all your detestable practices. You renounce it. You get specific on it. And sometimes the Lord will have you go another step. This is making things right. In Luke 19, verse 8, there's a great verse that talks about it. It's a story of a man named Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. The way they could collect taxes back then, all Rome cared about was getting the amount that Rome wanted. And if you're a tax collector, they didn't care if you collected as much as you wanted as long as Rome got their slice. So tax collectors would just rip people off all the time. So they were hated. Zacchaeus did this all the time. He was a wealthy man. He came to know Christ. There was a godly sorrow. There was biblical repentance in his life. And you see what he did. It says, but Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated, what's the next word? Anybody. Out of what? Anything. I'll pay him back four times the amount. Now the Lord's not saying go... There's not a directive. This is not Zacchaeus earning forgiveness. 
That is a gift of God. It's grace. But there's something so changed in his heart, that stuff doesn't even matter. He knows he hurt someone. He's got to go back. I'm so sorry. It was so wrong. Here you go. I want to pay you back. I ripped you off. I didn't even tell you, but I was ripping you off. Here's this, and here's three times more the amount. Here you go. Four times the amount. Paid him back. There's times God will lead you to go do that. It's an all-in attitude. It's not a bargaining moment with God. It's like, whatever you want, Lord, I'll do it. That's the heart behind it, and it's powerful. So repentance includes both remorse from recognizing you've wronged God and a resolve to reverse your behavior and also to make wrongs right. You know the result of this? The minute you do this, it will result in restored relationships. It results in relationships being restored with God, with others, vertically, horizontally. There's resolve. It's that feeling like it's good. You know, when Paul sent that letter to this church, these Corinthians, do you think that hurt them to get it? Sure it did. They could have been stiff-necked and pulled back, held on bitter, resentful, but they said, listen, we own that. That's true. They repent. They turn from it, turn back to the Lord. I'm telling you, their relationship with Paul was stronger than ever. You hear Paul's love for him. They love him. They love the Lord. They are right with God. Doesn't that feel good to be right with God? You know, when that is off kilter, any of them are off kilter, we are not right. Our world's not right. Because there is a spiritual DNA within us that we are designed to be in right relationship. So anytime it is off, we're supposed to feel uncomfortable. We're supposed to feel that. The scary part is, if you walk in it so long, you stop feeling that. Lord, help me. Lord, help us when we're getting to that place. But when it's off, it's off. There's a chance that many of you have been here for a while, maybe a few weeks, maybe coming for months, could be even longer. You come to services, but you feel so far from God. You feel distant. You're far away. Do you know the heart of God is to call all of us back? That experience of being free with him is designed for us always. It always has been. He wants us all to experience the freedom of repentance. He wants us to experience the freedom of repentance. I want to read one verse to you. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. I want to encourage you with this. It says, for God is working in you. Now look what God gives. Ooh, this is good. He's giving you the desire And the, what's the next word? Ooh, he gives desire. And he gives power to do what pleases him. Do you know that right now, God's working in this place right now. There's a sense right now that you're already feeling a greater desire to return to him. Especially if you've been away. Do you know who's helping insert that desire? That's him. He's so gentle. He's given you desire. 
I know a lot of people freak out about it. Like, I don't know if I could even keep doing it, though. Hey, that is not your stress. He will even give you power to keep going. Isn't that good? Ooh, great little preview here. Two things, how we experience this. First, here's, here's the mindset. Trust that God's already giving desire. He's already working in this. He's doing this in you. But it's gonna be, you're going to have to come to a place where you're going to verbalize this. You're going to say it. But you're going to have to be willing to say, I will turn from anything not of God. And I mean anything. I'll turn from anything not of God. Anything. That's a great, great thing to say. Powerful thing to say. Well, I don't know what to turn from. Where do I go with that? Well, you know what? David was great. He gave a great, great picture of what that even looks like. Psalm chapter 139, verse 23, beginning of verse 24, it says this. He said, search me, O God. Who's he asking him to search? God. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Search me out. Check it out. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any offensive way in me. Do you see the mindset as he's coming there? Lord, I'll turn from anything that's not of you. Show it to me. What is it? Show me. Test it. See if there's any offensive way in me. When's the last time you've tried that? Lord, show it to me. Open my eyes. Show me what I can't even see on my own. I want to see it. I want to turn from it. That's a heart of repentance. 1 Samuel 7, verse 3, it says this, And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, Samuel's a prophet of God, If you're returning to the Lord, what's his next phrase? With all your heart. Then he says, do this. Hey, rid yourself of the foreign gods, of the Asheroths, and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. Hey, you really doing this? You all in? You going for it? There's a sense that they'd given themselves to other gods, these Asheroths, and they'd make these poles that were representations to other gods. And he says, get rid of it. Get rid of it. That's powerful words. Is there anything, if, as, as the Lord begins to stir in you, is there anything you need to get rid of? That is drawing you away from him that has more of your affection. Something, it's, it's got a hold on you. It's leading you down another direction. It can be an ungodly relationship. He says, get rid of it. It's turning you from him. It could be an ungodly practice in your business. Get rid of it. Got to turn from it. It's not the matter of cost. It's just turn from it. Trust him with it. Turn from it. Could be a bad attitude. And it's spilling on everybody else around you. Lord, show it to me. I want to get rid of it. I'll turn. Maybe you're into occult stuff. Guess what? It's not of him. Get rid of it. Turn from it. Get rid. Don't just keep it in your closet. You're getting rid of it. Maybe it's unforgiveness. It's a bitter spirit. And you've held on to this thing. Get rid of it. It'll kill you. It'll kill you, literally. That's why Psalm 16, verse 4 says, The sorrows of those will increase 
who run after other gods. You know, God knows you're going to have more sorrow. The longer you run away from him, the greater sorrow. It's not a torturing God trying to make you that, listen, you're falling into the consequence of your own decisions, and it's painful. The Lord knows that he's giving warning. So this is the attitude, Lord, it's, Lord, I'll do this. I'll turn from anything not of you, and I mean anything. That's the mindset, okay? Second thing, this is good. You run to him no matter what. You run to him no matter what. Let me just say this. As you start asking that question, Lord, search me. Whoa, you're going to start seeing some things. Do you know that so often when we feel far from God, the last person we want to turn to is God, right? Why do we do that? Because we're not quite sure how he sees us, what he really thinks of us. How's he going to respond when we go back? There is an ungodly fear that has come in that, is, that we've all been infected with because of it. You see it played out in the book of Genesis. In chapter 1, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God creates them. He gives them identity. He even gives them purpose. Here's the earth. Be fruitful, fill it. Go for it. Take care of this place. They're totally secure in him. And verse 28 says, God blessed them. What is the heart of God? That we fall under his blessing. That we're his kids. He loves us. We fall in his blessing. To be with us. To be for us. To be your best. If there's anyone out after you and for you, anyone in your corner, it's always him. Always has been. When sin entered, this is chapter 3 of Genesis. Something crazy takes place. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They both sinned. And they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they, next word, hid. They hid from God. They had never ever done this in their life, ever. This was a foreign response to God. They hid from him. Ah, here he comes, hide. And they go hiding from him. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord called to the man. Hey, where are you? The Lord's not saying like he didn't know where they were. What's he really saying? Why are you running? Where are you? He's saying, I never moved. You moved. Come back. Run. Such a powerful picture. Uh, You know, I have a son. I love him. Love my son. Now imagine this. If when I got home, I walked in the door, and that's my son, and you hear a three-year-old screaming, ah, you know, in a three-year-old way, terrified and running, daddy's home, ah, terrified, crying, hiding, what is going on, 
Ah, Daddy, no, no, don't come over. No, Daddy, get away. I'm scared. I did something wrong. Don't come near me, Daddy. I don't want, I'm scared. What are you going to do to me? I don't trust you anymore. I, I don't know what you're going to do. Don't hurt me. What would that come from? Is that my heart? Of course not. That would break my heart. So I need to like, discipline my kid. I'll, a lot of times I'll sit him there and I say, hey, listen, hey, you did something wrong, right? You know daddy still loves you? Yeah, I know daddy still loves me. Even when you're doing something wrong? Of course. Yeah, your daddy always loves you. But what if my son did that? Hiding. That would break my heart. He's broken. Thinks he's going to get hurt. Thinks I'm going to just lash out. Beat him up with words or something. This is not my heart. It's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of a true father. But somehow, somewhere, this has got so twisted that we think God is going to beat us over the head when we run back to him. He'll hold our sin in front of our face, shove it in, make you feel even. It's just going to beat you up with it. He's never going to do that. That's not his heart. We even heard from James 4, there will be times you'll be crying over it. You'll feel sorry for it. You'll be repenting. He says, humble yourself. He's going to lift you back up. There's a great scripture, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, on repentance. It says, or do you think, how much? Lightly. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. He's kind. He's good. In fact, he's absolutely good all the time. He's good. He's kind. He's so kind. You know, he's so kind that there is wrath to pay because of sin. He's so kind, he said, I know. I will pay for your wrath myself. Jesus willing to come to die, take the very wrath, full wrath on himself so we are preserved and protected from that wrath. I love what Cook says. He said, like, Is there wrath to pay? Of course there is. And basically lays out. Did Jesus take the wrath of God? Did he? Yes. Anybody here? Did Jesus take it? How much did he take? How much? So Cook says, hey, if he took all of it, how much is left for you? If you're in Christ, he's taken all of it. He's that good. He's that good. The more you get lost in that, I'm telling you, his kindness will lead you to repent. Because don't you want to run after him? That's who you want to run after. It'll lead you right back to him. You know, as a pastor, some of the most common things I get is destructive sorrow. Um, It's unhealthy guilt. People say things like this. What I have done is too bad. I can't be forgiven for this. Really? The moment that's said, what are we saying? Lord, I know you paid a price. It covered everybody's sins. But listen, mine, this one, a little too big. 
and it's, it's not really humble at all because you know what it's saying? You didn't do enough. Your death covered all those things, but not this one. He didn't, he didn't suffer quite enough. Of course he suffered enough. He was righteous, perfect, holy. He suffered all of it. He took it all. So there is no place for any of us to ever come before God and say, man, what I've done is too bad. I can't be forgiven for it. Of course you can. That's how good it is. The other one, I need to punish myself for my sins in order to be forgiven. So people hold on to it. Ah, God, I, I can't just say, Lord, forgive me. And it's, it's, listen, same thing. You cannot add to his sacrifice. It's full and complete. Always was. So listen. Beating yourself up does not make God feel better about you. It's like if my son was always beating himself, I'd actually break my heart. There's no reason for it. You're killing yourself. It's the rattlesnake biting himself. Don't do that. You enter into his grace fully, completely. David modeled it. He committed murder. Where did he run? He eventually ran right back to God. Why? Because it's the safest place to be. Godly sorrow leaves no regret. That's good. Let's pray. Titus 3, 4 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. His mercy. Do you know that the kindness of God is available right now? His mercy is extending. It is. His mercy is extending. Like, how do you respond to a message like this? You know what you do? You just do what David said. It just starts with saying, Lord, search me. Search my heart. What's going on in there? Show me what I don't even see on my own. Search it, Lord. I want to see it. I want to see it. The Lord's already showing you stuff right now. He's showing you those things. You know, what do you do when you start seeing those things? Here's what I want you to picture in your mind. Just with your eyes shut, I want you to picture this right now. Because he's going to keep showing you some things right now. Here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture like you taking a pen. You writing out a little sign what that is. What is he showing you? Your attitude. That unforgiveness. Some unlawful practice. Well, I don't care what it is. Some ungodly relationship. I don't care what it is. You, you put it down there. The thing you've held in shame. The thing that it's hard for you to forgive yourself for. Whatever it is, he's showing you. You put it there. Now I want you in your mind to do this with it. You're going to the cross where he has taken the wrath of God. He is taking it has taken it 2,000 years ago. And you take that now, it's a sign with a string on it, and you put it around his neck. You put it around his neck. There it is. And this is what you say. Say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. 
I am so sorry for doing this. I regret it. But I'm bringing it back to you. You've asked me to bring it to you. I am so sorry. I'm so sorry I have to put this around your neck that you had to pay for this. I'm so sorry. That is godly sorrow. You know, the Lord rose. He's not staying there. You're just saying, Lord, I'm willing to turn from anything not of you. And I mean anything. Because I want you. I want you more than this thing I hold on to. I want you. I turn from that and I turn to you. I give you my life right now. And whether you've given your life to Christ or not, you're just saying, Lord, right now I am running to you. I run to you with all of my heart. Thank you for cleaning me up. Thank you for cleaning me up. But I give you my life. I give you my life again right now. Now, some of you may have just done that for your very first time ever. That is awesome. You are reconciling with God. If you did that for the first time, just look at me. Just look at me. I'd like to see you. I see you over there, sir. Yeah. Okay, just look up if you prayed that for the first time. In the back over there, I see you. As you keep responding to the Lord, listen. I see you over there. As you keep responding to the Lord, you just say this. Anytime you show me something, Lord, I'll, I'll bring it right back to you. I want to be clean. I want to run with you. So continue to do what I could never do. Wash me. Clean me. Free me up. Thank you, Lord, I can repent. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness. Thank you so much. You know, right now we're going to have a chance to respond by taking communion together. What an awesome way to do this, right? You know what the Lord said to do? He says, I want you to remember me by taking the, gut, the bread and the cup, and it is a picture of my sacrifice made full and complete, where all the wrath has been poured out and taken care of. And he wants us to remember that at communion, just to go take it. So as we worship these two songs together, I just want you to keep responding to the Lord. He may show you some more stuff. He, of course he will. By his goodness, he doesn't show it all to us at once. So whenever he shows you stuff, oh, Lord, oh, that one. You bring it right back to him. Bring it back. Let him keep cleansing you. Let him keep washing you clean. So, Father, as we go to these tables, I pray you'd meet us powerfully. I pray you'd use this worship time to deepen our encounter with you right now. We want to run to you fully and unabandoned in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, how many of you feel a little bit more free after coming to church today? That's good. That's the heart of God. That's what he wants. So, hey, listen, if, you are, uh, if you've ever given your life to Christ, you know what that makes you? You are in Christ. And do you think that the Father loves Jesus? Yes. If you're in Christ, you think the Father loves you? Oh, yeah. So it's going to be good. You know, has he taken the wrath? Yes, he has. Is he going to be with you this week? So it's going to be a good week, right? Of course, it's going to be a great week. So, Hey, I'm glad you guys made it out here this week. As you know, um, our lead pastor, Mike, he's going to be back here next week bringing a great message, baptisms. It'll be an awesome time. Bring your friends out. We'll see you then. God bless you guys. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, 
Thanks for listening.